Hear that? It's the sound of someone whacking the ground with a rake. Specifically, they're beating around the bush, which we've done enough of in this ad too, so let's get right to it. The new moneymaker scratch-off from the Ohio Lottery doesn't beat around the bush. Money maker. Play the game and you could win money, up to $2 million. With more than $88 million in prizes, ranging from $50 to $500, Moneymaker cuts right to the cash. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like... What the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. Due to the graphic nature of this Queen Pen's crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of animal cruelty that some people may find offensive. In 2016, dozens of international newspapers splashed variations of one headline, Who is the Ivory Queen? Across the world, activists, reporters, and locals were clamoring to know what crime 66-year-old Yang Fing Glan had committed. As a Chinese expat based in Tanzania, she owned a popular restaurant in Dar es Salaam, the country's largest city. The Beijing restaurant was the best place in town for authentic Chinese food. Dozens of locals worked as waiters there. Yang promoted her restaurant as a place for everyone, a place to grow community ties. But in late 2015, authorities charged that she'd been using her restaurant as a front. Behind the delicious food at the Beijing restaurant, Yang was processing large quantities of contraband ivory. Yang's arrest was the bookend to a multi-year pursuit by Tanzanian police. A car chase through the streets of Dar es Salaam to catch her seemed to be plucked from a movie. The scene was entirely unexpected from a kind, elderly, bespectacled woman. On paper, Yang certainly didn't fit the profile for an ivory tycoon. But her status as a gracious transplant looking to build bridges was a carefully calculated facade. When she said she was serving the community, she actually meant serving herself. Yang was ruthless. If trafficking one of Africa's most sacred animals was what it took to line her pockets, she was ready. She'd do anything for white gold. I'm Howell Hargett. And I'm Kate Leonard, and this is Kingpins. Every week, we journey inside the ranks of organized crime rings, from street gangs to mafiosos, to understand how a kingpin or queenpin rises to the top of the underworld. And why they fall. As we follow the lives of infamous crime bosses, we'll explore how money and power change them, and how it changed the community around them. You can find episodes of Kingpins and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Kingpins for free on Spotify, just open the app, 
Tap Browse and type Kingpins in the search bar. At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. And if you enjoyed today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help us. This episode is about Yang Fing Glan, known as the Ivory Queen, a Chinese smuggler who helped move nearly two tons of illegal ivory out of Tanzania throughout the 2000s. Though she was born a Chinese national, by 2016, Miss Yang Fing Glen had been living in Africa for most of her adult life. What had started as a new chapter of her life developed into a home where she laid roots. Her ties to Tanzania began when she was in university in Beijing. She majored in Swahili and was one of the first in her class to graduate with that specialty. Working in linguistics requires focus and patience, and Yang demonstrated she could be counted upon to translate accurately and with great nuance. She appeared to be a bright young woman ready to serve her country. That expertise led to her assignment as a translator on the Tazara Railway Project in the 1970s. A collaborative effort funded by Tanzania, Zambia, and China, the project's hope was to increase trade between independent African countries. Many of these countries were former colonial nations. They had gained their own autonomy, but they were still surrounded by regions with white colonial leaders. Having the freedom to trade between themselves without relying on these other hostile governments would give the new African-led countries a better chance. China's interest in the project may have seemed out of left field, but it was actually a strategic play. The communist country hoped that financially backing countries like Tanzania would create diplomatic solidarity. The Cold War was still booming and China, which was on rocky footing with both the United States and the USSR, was in desperate need of the Allies. Tanzania was as good a start as any. So the Chinese government sent nearly 50,000 citizens to Africa to work on the railway's construction. Amongst them was Yang Fing Glan, she worked as a translator between native Swahili speakers and the Chinese workers. One of those Chinese workers would soon become her husband. Once the trains were up and running, Yang and her new beau returned home to Beijing in 1975. Not long after that, they were married and soon Yang gave birth to a daughter named Fei. The name is the first Mandarin character meaning Africa. Despite her child's namesake, it seemed that Yang's interest in living in Africa had waned. For the next two decades, her primary residence was in her native country. Then, in 1998, as she was nearing 50, Yang moved to Tanzania permanently. Not only did she secure a building in downtown Dar es Salaam, she was quick to start two businesses within it. The lower floor became a dine-in restaurant called the Beijing Restaurant. The second floor was a financial firm, Beijing Great Wall Investment. 
Yang claimed Great Wall was an exporting outlet to take advantage of the bountiful produce in Tanzania, like peppers and jackfruit. Being bilingual, she could navigate both buying for the restaurant and for international trade as well as any local could. It seemed Dar es Salaam had been granted an unlikely matriarch. Yang was the fairy godmother the city hadn't anticipated. Her businesses were successful, she gave good jobs to the locals, and she brought a spirit of optimism to the community. On top of all that, the food at Beijing restaurant was delicious. Yang didn't limit her aspirations to hospitality and trade, though. Her business savvy propelled her onto international boards, like the Tanzania-China-Africa Business Council. Her nimble Swahili and Mandarin allowed her to quickly integrate with both locals and the expatriate Chinese in the city. Less than a decade after she'd returned to Africa, by the mid-2000s, Yang was secretary general of the business council. At conventions, she was quick to stress the importance of trust between her homeland, China, and her chosen home, Tanzania. Everyone welcomed Yang's financial acumen. To her friends and colleagues, she appeared to be a hard-working, self-made businesswoman. But they had no idea of the real reasons why Yang could talk such a big business game. When the restaurant flipped its sign to closed every night, she was in the thick of a much seedier operation. She was smuggling, and it wasn't produce. Yang was trafficking ivory, and she had years worth of skills to help her. She had a reputation in Dar es Salaam for being able to pivot between locals and wealthy Chinese citizens. The former were capable of obtaining the contraband ivory, and the latter could foot the bill. The ivory queen had settled into the playing field nicely. Now she was looking for how to arrange her pawns. The lust for ivory long predates modern society. Even back in the Roman Empire, it was a coveted luxury. And to get it, elephants from North Africa were hunted for their tusks. Once it was extracted, the tusks were then processed for carving. It was common for small, hand-chiseled ivory figurines to be found in the tombs of ancient leaders. The trade waned for a few centuries, but it boomed again in medieval times. Appetite for the white gold continued through the Renaissance and into the Romantic period. Especially in the Victorian era, ivory consumption soared. England had a quickly growing middle class hungry for fine things. Wealthy British families imported furniture and decor either constructed with ivory or inlaid as veneer. The curved beige legs of tables and chairs showed visitors that the owners of the house had money to burn. A concerning pattern was emerging of ivory being associated with economic status. Unfortunately, it would repeat itself again and again across the world as different countries gained purchasing power. A similar progression occurred in the 1970s and 80s. Asia began importing more ivory when Japan found its economic stride. 
As usual, the nouveau riche wanted visible status symbols. But the rise in ivory imports had a high price tag, an increase in elephant poaching. After gaining independence from their colonial overlords in the 1960s, many African countries enacted bans on elephant and rhino hunting. They anticipated, rightly, that the foreign powers would be back to raid their landscapes. Legality, though, did little to deter poachers. According to the Scientific American, wildlife crime can be a lesser priority in African countries. In comparison to violent acts like terrorism and homicide, killing animals falls lower on the totem pole for prosecution. As a result, poachers feel empowered to risk being caught in exchange for the money they stand to gain. Lax prosecution allowed poaching to grow to record levels in the 1980s. Elephant populations in West and Central Africa grew scarce. As a result, the ivory trade pushed even further into eastern parts of Africa, like Tanzania, Uganda, and Kenya. The problem became too severe to ignore after the poaching influx of the 1970s and 80s. Over these two decades, an estimated 100,000 elephants were killed annually for the ivory trade. By 1989, this culminated in an international ban on trading ivory by the UN body CITES, the Convention on International Trade in Endangered Species. In Tanzania, a specialized anti-poaching unit titled Operation Uhai was put in place. The country's military teamed with local rangers and police to crack down on poachers. Together, all these moves briefly mitigated the rampant slaughter of elephants. But as soon as that started to happen, Western funding for the efforts in Africa lulled. The anti-poaching foundations were left to their own devices. This lack of resources was hard to overcome. And there was only so much these countries could do on their own when the demand for ivory was coming from outside the continent. The worst of the poaching was tied directly to the revived lust for ivory that sprung up across Asian countries in the 2000s. Around 2010, Chinese consumption specifically was nearing its peak. The hunger for ivory was everywhere, from holistic medicine to table ornaments, jewelry, and chopsticks. It was considered a status symbol on par with designer clothing. According to a report from Michigan State University, these products were popular as gifts because they are thought to confer status on the receiver as well as the gift giver. To give and receive ivory was an unspoken transaction. Both parties knew they were engaging in a ritual the majority of the world couldn't afford. China was one of the few countries that still had a legal market for ivory. Most other nations had already banned it. This meant that, even though it was legal to buy and sell ivory within Chinese borders, it was illegal to bring it across the border in or out of the surrounding countries. Since there aren't a lot of wild elephants roaming around Beijing, the domestic supply was pretty limited. This obviously paved the way for crime. The door was wide open for smugglers to fill the supply gap. 
According to National Geographic in the early 2000s, China lobbied the UN's Endangered Species Council sites persistently. Ever since the trading ban in 1989, African governments had amassed inventories of ivory they'd seized from poachers and brokers. Metric tons were simply sitting in storage. China wanted to buy it. Sites was in a difficult position. The stockpiles weren't for lack of trying to find a solution. They could either sell off the ivory that had been collected and reinvest the profits in conservation, or they could simply destroy the ivory. Selling the materials seemed contrary to the Council's entire mission statement, but burning it just to get rid of it was also a losing scenario. The already precious commodity would skyrocket in value. Either decision seemed to fuel the vicious cycle. So while the UN wrung their hands, smugglers were stepping up to fill the void, and Yang Fing Glan was in the perfect position to get illegal ivory into the hands of thousands. Up next, we'll see how China's lust for ivory flared the poaching crisis. Now, back to the story. The scale of elephant poaching from the 1960s until the late 1980s created a devastating loss for Africa's wildlife. With populations at dire lows, an international ban was enacted in 1989. But one country in particular was still looking to increase its ivory imports despite global efforts to stop the trade. The economic development of China in the 2000s paved the way for an upswing in luxury markets. As a result, the country sought more supplies than the legal domestic ivory trade could cover. Without a legitimate option for their jewelry and other trinkets, wealthy Chinese buyers looked to other outlets. And Yang Fing Glan knew exactly how to connect supply to demand. She just needed to get her hands on the cargo. The precarious journey of ivory begins with hunters in the African bush. These groups can be massive syndicates or small independent poachers. But on the ground, they all operate more or less the same. The hunters set out to track their prey. When they believe they've found a herd, they strike, wounding the elephants with either guns or poison arrows. Once the animals have stopped moving, the poachers move on to the excavation process. Up to one-third of a tusk extends into the elephant's cranial cavity. Poachers viciously mutilate the animals to remove as much as possible. Often, they also take the elephant meat to sell or eat leaving the rest of the carcasses to decay. After the tusks are in hand, the gap between the poachers in the wilderness and wealthy buyers abroad is still wide. The secrecy necessary to avoid regulation agencies and police begets more problems, from communication to payment. So middlemen or women, usually based in Africa, step in to bridge the chasm. Cargo usually changes hands multiple times between different brokers before reaching its final point of sale. Once it leaves Africa, 
most of these middlemen or brokers are stationed in coastal cities or seaports to receive the tusks and store them at a secure location until they're shipped out to the final destination. At this point, the value skyrockets. International buyers are more than happy to compensate for the risk of moving the cargo nearly 5,000 miles. According to National Geographic, ivory can rise tenfold in price as it moves through the supply chain. For the cost of their labor, poachers walk away with anywhere between 65 to 397 US dollars per pound of ivory, depending on location and timing. A single tusk can weigh in at nearly 250 pounds, so that's no small payday. But that single pound of ivory could rise to $220 by the time it reaches the first middleman, then to over $600 before it leaves Africa for processing. Once it reaches Asian markets, a pound of ivory lingers between $1,000 and $4,600. Clearly, the profits to be made kept the supply chain active, and Yang Finglan saw the chance to jump in. As a savvy and well-educated woman who had lived internationally, Yang had everything she needed to set up shop as a broker. She worked alongside locals ever since her time on the Tazara Railway. More importantly, she was an upper-middle-class Chinese national who knew dozens of people with similar or higher socioeconomic status. Yang had access to both sides. And Dar es Salaam is a critical port city, which created an easy exit strategy for shipments. If she could connect poachers and buy the ivory off them, she could easily pass it on to buyers in China without anyone raising an eyebrow. As the icing on the cake, Yang's mastery of both Chinese and Swahili meant that she could grease the communication wheels and keep shipments moving quickly and she was in a position to negotiate higher paychecks for herself on each end of the sale. Yang seemed to hint at her under-the-table dealings in one 2014 interview with newspaper China Daily. She insisted, I was not and am still not a typical businesswoman. But no one could have guessed the trickery Yang would cook up to mask her trades. No hungry patron would bat an eye at delivery trucks backing up to the Beijing restaurant. In fact, the more vans that showed up to load produce in and out, the better. It seemed to indicate that the product was fresh and business was booming. But behind the kitchen doors, Yang used her eatery as the central point of her smuggling operation. The food trucks she routed to the restaurant actually carried ivory shipments from outside the city. Once the cargo was brought inside the two-story building, the tusk would be readied for distribution and sometimes hidden until the time came for export. The Beijing restaurant was serving as an incredible funnel, draining literal tons of ivory out of Tanzania. Naturally, it didn't go unnoticed for long. A 2015 government census stated that from 2009 to 2014, Tanzania's elephant population fell by 60 percent. 
these drastic numbers prompted a slew of not-for-profit organizations and law enforcement agencies to search for the culprit. Tanzania's National and Transnational Serious Crimes Investigation Unit prowled tirelessly for more information. In late 2013, after conducting a raid on a home not far from the Beijing restaurant, the unit uncovered over 700 elephant tusks. But that wasn't all. The tusks had been nestled into shipping containers filled with other contraband. Amongst the cargo were hefty packs of cash, weighing scales, and a minibus complete with burner license plates. If all that wasn't enough to raise eyebrows, then the three men who tried to dissuade the authorities with a cash bribe definitely were. A notice inside the container indicated the metal behemoth was bound for Zanzibar, an island about 50 miles from Dar es Salaam. Using this destination as a guide, investigators traced down another shipment. This one weighed in with 2.9 tons of elephant tusks. Three men were charged with smuggling in connection to the two shipments, though one was later acquitted. The investigators kept their ears down, looking for evidence that would lead them to the next link in the chain. They used a tactic they called follow the gun, save the elephant, pinpointing a poacher's source of ammunition and thus financial support often points to the next person above them. The agency took this cue from Kenya, where authorities saw great success tracking the weapons poachers used and the phone calls they placed to create a clearer picture of the parties involved. Integrating this technique, Tanzanian authorities ran with a tip that came through in 2014. They tracked down a man named Manasse Philemon, who'd long been suspected of brokering ivory trades in Dar es Salaam. Oddly, Philemon wasn't proficient in Swahili, but he was shockingly adept at Mandarin. The oddity of being fluent in Chinese, but not his native language, led investigators to suspect that Philemon was working with a Chinese buyer. After extensive questioning, he eventually gave them a name, Yang Fing Glan. But Yang Fing Glan had vanished just as soon as the Tanzanian crime unit had probable cause to bring her in, she was gone. Nearly a year passed without any information on where she was. And then finally, in 2015, a notification appeared on their monitoring system, which was able to flag suspicious incoming and outgoing calls. Yang's cell phone was active again in Tanzania. And now that she had returned, the investigation could pick up where it left off. The special team tracked Yang down to her home in October of 2015. However, when they got there, she hid inside and refused to submit to arrest. Tanzanian authorities were at a stalemate. Likely afraid she was armed, they didn't dare rush in. They waited outside the house for nearly seven hours, and then they heard her car starting up and speeding away. In hot pursuit, 
The agents weaved through the streets of Dar es Salaam. The densely packed roads were challenging to navigate, and they had to be careful not to clip any rogue pedestrians. Yang wasn't deterred by the wails of the police jeeps behind her. She kept her foot on the gas until she approached the beachfront neighborhood where the Palm Beach Hotel stood. The traffic there was too thick to keep up the speed, and the police were gaining on her. With the pale blue hotel as a backdrop, the police jeeps rammed into Yang's car. As she backed out of her battered vehicle, her hands in the air, police were shocked to see their suspect. The 66-year-old woman peered back at them over her glasses. She was shaking from adrenaline and wheezing for breath. She appeared the most unlikely portrait of an ivory trafficker. However, her trial would reveal just how deep her sordid dealings went. But justice wouldn't come with swift immediacy. Though she had been charged with her crimes in fall of 2015, Yang wouldn't stand before the court of Dar es Salaam until February of 2019, over three years later. And in those three years, major upheavals were coming to the ivory game. Up next, we'll see how the international market changed and what became of Yang's trial when it finally arrived. Now, back to the story. In 2016, a documentary called The Ivory Game premiered at the Toronto International Film Festival. The narrative followed a poacher known as Shatani, a Swahili term for devil, and how he supplied the illegal ivory trade in Asia. The narrative followed a poacher and how he supplied the illegal ivory trade in Asia. The film didn't hold back on placing China under the microscope. Its footage confirmed that illegal ivory consistently traveled into China thanks to the bribery of police and officials. And the poacher had been pinpointed as a possible supplier to ivory queen Yang Finglan. The documentary itself didn't profile Yang, but the film brought global awareness to the poaching problem. And it made a pointed assertion that the fate of African elephants hung in the hands of the Chinese president. In August of 2017, another sudden occurrence fanned the flames of the issue. South African conservationist Wayne Lauder was in a taxi in Dar es Salaam en route from the airport to his hotel. As the cab idled, another car pulled up alongside it. The passenger door was yanked open and Lauder was shot point blank. Lauder's death wasn't a coincidental holdup. He had been a co-founder of the PAMS Foundation, a nonprofit conservation group that secured funding for Tanzania's National and Transnational Serious Crimes Investigation Unit. This was the very organization that had caught Yang Finglan nearly two years before. According to the Elephant Crisis Fund, the Tanzanian investigators had made strides to detain over 1,000 poachers and traffickers with the support of the PAMS Foundation. This made Wayne Lauder some dangerous enemies. 
Though Lauder had always acknowledged the risk he was taking by targeting poaching syndicates, his assassination proved that the conflict was more serious than most of the world had imagined. Even Prince William spoke out after Lauder's death, urging the end of the bloody battle. The stakes had reached a tipping point. A change in political tides may have seemed far-fetched in 2015, at the time of Yang's arrest, but in light of Lauder's murder, it was necessary. On December 31st, 2017, China proclaimed its legal ivory trade was no more. Up until that point, the country was the world's most expansive market for the commodity. But legal had grown to be an increasingly gray term for the trades occurring both in and outside of the nation's borders. The 2016 documentary, The Ivory Game, had found numerous Hong Kong ivory shops operating with doctored licenses. Owners that were once granted a legal amount of ivory had been swapping out contraband ivory to replenish their supplies, all under the same license. More blatantly, the video footage showed how common it was to black out the name or total units allocated on a business's permit. If a shop was pressed for documentation, they had a near-blank check to cover their sales. Politicians had already committed to making a change. In the fall of 2015, President Xi Jinping and President Barack Obama created an agreement that would nearly eliminate legal ivory trading in both countries over a multi-year period. But the persistence of non-governmental organizations or NGOs and international organizations, coupled with high-profile arrests of smugglers like Yang, was what finally brought the pact to fruition. And sensing that a large gesture would be needed to get the point across, China settled on a familiar face to promote awareness, Yao Ming. The basketball legend became the face of an ad campaign by WildAid, a San Francisco-based nonprofit. The ad circulated the message that ivory was no longer legal, featuring Yao bumping fist to trunk with a live elephant. Placing these ads all over China was a complete departure from the government's stance on ivory consumption just 10 years before. According to National Geographic, in 2008, not only had China legally bought 73 tons of ivory, but it constructed the world's largest factory dedicated to carving it. But a decade of heinous slaughter, criminal proceedings, and international backlash proved that this white gold wasn't worth its weight in repercussions. China would no longer support nationals that engaged in the trade, the trial of the Ivory Queen herself would prove it. When news of Yang's impending trial got out, patrons of the Beijing restaurant were shocked. The restaurant had been heralded as a community hangout. A local documentary crew interviewed diners, and they stood behind Yang. They were bluntly defensive, insisting she was a warm-hearted, nice lady. 
Yang herself had always proudly championed the restaurant as a place meant to further friendship between the Chinese and Tanzanians. Her diners couldn't believe she had been conducting anything out of the ordinary behind the facade. Even more, they insisted the drawn-out delay since her arrest in late 2015 was a result of insufficient evidence against her. By 2018, she still didn't have a trial date. Though it's unclear what led to the three-year delay, Tanzanian authorities insisted it was forthcoming. Finally, in early 2019, nearly three years after the car chase through the streets of Dar es Salaam, Yang was brought to trial. She stood before the city's Supreme Court on charges of smuggling over 700 elephant tusks out of Africa since the early 2000s. The prosecution dove into how exactly she'd managed to operate such a scheme without being caught. Upon questioning her, it was clear that Yang's ties to wealthy Chinese business people, both in Tanzania and abroad, gave her the capital to buy the tusks and clientele to sell it to. Allegedly, Yang went so far as to bury the tusks in the backyards of various homes around Dar es Salaam. She was able to do so with the help of her accomplices. On February 19, 2019, Yang and her two Tanzanian associates were each sentenced to 15 years in prison. Between 2000 and 2004, they smuggled 860 pieces of ivory valued at over 5 million U.S. dollars. It couldn't be proven, but since Yang's connections within Tanzania dated back as far as the mid-1970s, investigators believed her intent to conduct smuggling may have dated back over 20 years. Senior Tanzanian officials were staunch that Yang's crimes were grave, and her sentence reflected it. A Washington Post article relayed the same sentiment, saying, she helped buy the poachers' guns and ammunition. She was the connection between the local brokers and the international market. The 15-year sentence was not the only reparation due from Yang. According to the New York Times, she and her co-conspirators would either have to pay twice the market value of the elephant tusks or face an additional two years in prison. As of early 2019, Yang was expected to serve her sentence in the Ukanga prison within the city of Dar es Salaam. Internationally, Yang's case stood in the spotlight as an example of changing times. As a model for future prosecutions, NPR reported it stood as a hallmark case to test whether figurehead ivory traffickers would actually be prosecuted. Naturally, the slew of global press demanded a response from her home country. And shortly after Yang's conviction, the Ministry of Foreign Affairs stridently underscored it would not shield criminals. The department issued a statement saying that China does not protect Chinese nationals who commit crimes abroad, and that China upholds the just decision made by Tanzania in this case. Yang's 15-year sentence was certainly a win on behalf of the Tanzanian government and the numerous nonprofits that combat poaching. 
But despite the praise from most wildlife conservation groups, there were still subtle undercurrents of dissatisfaction. A representative from the Worldwide Fund for Nature expressed frustration with Yang's sentence. It is not punishment enough for the atrocities she committed by being responsible for the poaching of thousands of elephants in Tanzania. She ran a network that killed thousands of elephants. Yang's trial served as proof that treating poaching as an offense to be remedied after the fact had serious consequences. During the height of Yang's smuggling and poaching in the mid-2000s, the Scientific American reported that 8% of the African elephant population was being wiped out annually. In turn, elephants are known for their slow reproduction rate. Though international bans and crackdowns on importation have recently made strides to curb some of the illegal trade, Yang's smuggling proved that closing loopholes doesn't eradicate the source of the crime. Wildlife activists and governments alike have seen that the only way to dissuade illegal trade fueled by poaching is to ensure that middlemen or women are held accountable. We don't know yet whether the consequences of Yang's sentence are stark enough to dissuade other brokers from filling the void. However, thanks to the work of international organizations, consumers have a newfound awareness of ivory's true cost. Thanks again for listening to Kingpins. You can find more episodes of Kingpins and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals, like Kingpins, for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Kingpins on Spotify, just open the app and type Kingpins in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. Kingpins was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound designed by Trent Williamson with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Travis Clark. This episode of Kingpins was written by Mackenzie Moore with writing assistance by Kate Gallagher and stars Kate Leonard and Howell Hargett. <laughs>